Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. When you think of the summer, the things that come to mind are barbecues, going to the beach, playing baseball, and eating ice cream. It's a wonderful season that opens up many opportunities for people to gather. For Chosen People Ministries, summer means much more. It means Camp Kesher, Experience Israel, and our Shalom outreaches throughout the country, where we mobilize our staff and volunteers to reach and serve the Jewish people on the streets of major cities across America and even throughout Israel. Due to COVID-19, all of these wonderful outreach opportunities that we looked forward to came to a halt. But this did not stop our staff. We pressed on and developed virtual ways to meet through our congregations, Bible studies, online conferences, and much more. In a time of great trouble and uncertainty, we have been more motivated than ever to share the gospel. Last week, we heard Dr. Rich Freeman talk about Romans 1.16 and why it is important to share the gospel with Jewish people. To continue this theme of sharing the gospel, the next three episodes will focus on challenging questions we usually hear during our ministry outreach. Today, we are bringing back Robert Walter, who will help us navigate two very important questions. Robert, welcome back to Our Hope. Thank you, Abe. Great to be back. So uh, could you just give us a little update about what's happening in Brooklyn? It, it kind of seems like we're going backwards a little bit now with COVID-19. <laughs> Things were getting better, and now it seems like we're we're headed backwards. So what does that mean for ministry in Brooklyn? What What's the latest yeah, so honestly, uh, ministry in Brooklyn, things are are going well. I mean, we've been doing the same thing we've been doing since the quarantine began. So primarily our ministry is online, whether it's over Zoom or one-on-one uh, -on -one Skype meetings or Zoom Bible studies and, uh, and congregational services and discipleship meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, and things like that. Yeah, so this, uh, so the pandemic has definitely made its impact on the ministry. But we are trusting God. I think that's all we can do right now, and uh, and looking to Him. Yeah. So I know um, 
that's the ministry in Brooklyn, but there were some outreach opportunities that I did mention in our opening of this episode uh, that were canceled and, and brought to a halt. Um, so I, I know you were leading Camp Kesher, which happens every summer, and you're a part of Shalom New York, which also happens every summer. Um, so now that those things are not happening, what kind of what, what does that mean for our, our ministry? Well, that has been tough, um, you know, with Camp Kesher. Uh, which is our camp for eight to sixteen year old kids. Right. Uh, we have one on the East Coast. We have one on the West Coast. Uh, so, but we got a lot of disappointed campers, you know, yeah, and yeah. counselors too. It's usually such a a great time uh, every year. But you know what we've done is we've been having regular Zoom meetings with the campers uh, just to get them connected. So we'll have a, a short time of worship and a little devotional. And then we'll split the kids up into like different cabins on Zoom uh, in breakout rooms, it's called. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they get to fellowship, they get to talk and uh, and it's, you know, it's a substitute for for the regular summer activity. Sure. But it uh, definitely pales in comparison to the real thing. Yeah, but it also sounds like they're meeting a lot more than in that week that they spend together. Yeah. Yeah. It has opened up uh, more opportunities for like ongoing regular uh, connection and fellowship for, for these campers. That's great. That's great. So, and Shalom New York, I know is not happening. We usually have volunteers for that. I, I, I want to bring up Shalom New York because that's a big reason why we're doing, uh, these three episodes on challenging questions that we often hear from Jewish people. Um, during Shalom New York, we, we play these videos for our volunteers and basically train them on how to deal with these questions that they hear. Um, and how to kind of overcome them. So just curious, in your time of ministry, what are two challenging questions you often hear from Jewish people in particular that hinder them from believing that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, to narrow it down to two is, uh, is you know, a little challenging because there are a number of like really tough objections or, right. um, you know, roadblocks that a Jewish person might have. Uh, when considering the the idea that Jesus Yeshua uh, could be the Messiah of Israel, but just off the top of my head, I think two that really stand out. One would be uh, this idea of um, you know that I'm a good person. You know, like what? Why do I need a savior? Why do I need a redeemer? Why do I need a Messiah? You mm-hmm. know, I'm I'm a good person. Right. You know, I don't I don't murder anybody. I'm, right. I'm not as bad as that guy. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's one. And then another big one, especially for Jewish people, uh, has to do with the the deity of Yeshua, the the mm. deity of of Jesus, the fact that he is God in the flesh. Right. Uh, for a Jewish person, that is a very very tough pill to swallow. Mm. Okay. So I'm a good person. Why do I need the Messiah? And also, uh, God, you know, he's not a man and Jews don't worship a man. So let, let's start with the first one. Um, I'm a good person. Why do I name the Messiah? Why is this particular question so uh, common? So I think uh, this is something that's really pervasive in our culture and in our society today, in this, you know, postmodern kind of world that we live in. And in a lot of ways, America and the West especially is described more and more as being quote unquote post-Christian. Mm. And this idea that, you know, I'm a good person, it, it kind of, it stems from what we could describe as moral relativism, moral okay. relativism, which is basically the idea that uh, what's true 
for you, it's fine. That's that's true for you. But what's true for me, that's that's true for me. Right. And even if we're in disagreement, that's okay. We're, we tolerate each other and we can live in harmony. Uh, but don't you try to convince me that your truth is correct because then you become intolerant. Then then you're crossing a line. Uh, you're crossing a boundary that um, that society and culture tells us should not be crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this idea that basically there's no absolute truth, that all things are relative. Uh, that's that's an idea that uh, honestly is just opposed and stands in in stark contrast to what we find in the Bible. Uh, you know the biblical worldview. The, the basic premise of the biblical worldview is that we are sinners, that all of us have fallen short uh, of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all sin. And that because of our sin, uh, we need a Savior. We need redemption. And uh, the way that the scriptures and the biblical worldview present the solution to this mm-hmm. is that there is one answer. There is, there is only one way uh, to... Uh, have our sins forgiven to have that uh, salvation, and it's only through uh, Jesus, only through Yeshua. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and mm-hmm. no one can come to the Father except through Him. That's a great point. So, how can we address someone who believes that they are a good person and they will go to heaven, even though they haven't really grappled with the fact that they are sinners or accepted that they are a sinner? I think we can answer this question and consider some strategies and break it down into like two different categories. One, uh, I would say, is the 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 law and the gospel approach, which is more like a problem solution pathway. Right. Uh, and basically, what this is, this is helping a person realize and understand that there is a moral standard mm-hmm. that, that that God Himself has a moral standard an ethic that uh, is incumbent on all mankind to fall in line with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and many of these things of course are found in the word of God, but on top of that, just from nature, from the, from the natural order of creation, uh, this idea of, you know, a problem and a solution is fairly evident. So um, this is a, a, a path or a strategy uh, again, called the law and the gospel approach. Okay. Uh, we see Yeshua use this approach uh, with, you know, a number of different people. Uh, one example is with the woman at the well mm-hmm. in uh, in the Gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> he's as he's approaching her, he's really addressing uh, her own sinfulness, and right. he's helping her and guiding her to understand that she has fallen short. Mm-hmm. So he would often ask people to take stock of their own hearts. Uh, and compare it to the standards that are set forth in God's word. Uh, because honestly, a lot of people in the world, you know, we often live in a, in denial um, of, you know, how much we fall short mm-hmm. uh, when compared to God's standards. Uh, because scripture in many ways, it's like a mirror, okay? A mirror that shows us how bad we are. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason that the Torah was given. Uh, I know that we did a podcast episode talking about Shavuot and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Right. And yeah, again, one of the functions, one of the roles of the Torah was to serve as that moral guide for us, mm-hmm. to point out our sin, to convict us, 
uh, when we when we do wrong. Uh, so the scripture really functions in this way. And and again, the Ten Commandments are you know sort of like a a, a perfect standard that we can use when talking to someone, right. you know, especially a Jewish person. If we approach a person and begin to ask them and go through the different Ten Commandments uh, and ask them to like, personally take stock of how they're doing with those commandments. Uh, and it, it really it would help a person to sort of understand, well, okay, the commandment, thou, sh- thou shalt not lie or, or, you know, do not lie. Well, ask a person, have you ever told a lie before in your mm-hmm. life? And mm-hmm. all of us have, all yeah. of us have. So according to that, uh, by definition, that makes you a liar. Mm. Uh, the commandment, do not steal. Well, have you ever stolen anything in your life? Could be, you know, it could be something small. Could be you, you downloaded a song off that website for free, you know, when, when you really should have paid for it. It could have been, you know, stealing from your employer, you know, did you just spend an extra 10 minutes on your lunch break before you clocked back in? Okay, well, you know, technically that's stealing. You're stealing time from your employer or yeah. all kinds of stuff. So uh, all of us, again, have fallen short with, uh, with this standard. So what does that by definition make you? Well, that makes you a thief. Mm-hmm. So you're a liar and a thief. So Robert, I, I really like this strategy because now you're taking the pressure off of the conversation trying to justify the existence of God, but you're really focusing on just a practical moral standards that exist you know you shouldn't lie you shouldn't steal and that kind of uh helps the person really i guess take a step forward into really thinking about this conversation period without even having to to struggle with the idea of the existence of god if they're struggling with it so after you kind of take this approach what's next so once you've gotten you know the person to a point where you know they're sort of taking stock and inventory of their own actions, their own morality. Uh, you want it, You don't want to just leave them there because that's a little cruel. Yeah. You know, it's basically saying, "Yeah, you're a jerk." You know, <laughs> and then walking away. No, that's that's not uh, loving. Right. Which you know, I should also point out, love. When we're sharing the gospel with anybody, love must be um, the motivating factor. We have to be gracious. We have to be patient. And we have to do it from a place of, of real love and concern uh, because of what's at stake. You know, and that's why the next step is so important, because once you get a person to realize and take inventory and understand how far they fall short and even admit uh, that they are a lying thief okay, or, or whatever, um, you want to bring them to the next step where you introduce them to uh, the gospel, to what Jesus has done for us that there is uh, someone who is perfect, who walked this earth and never sinned, never never fell short, never told a lie, never stole anything, never blasphemed God, none of that. And yet this perfect uh, individual willingly laid down his life uh, as a sacrifice to take the punishment, to take the wrath of God that we deserve because of our lying and cheating and stealing and blaspheming and all of that in our our adulterous hearts. Uh, But he, Jesus, laid down his life and took the punishment, the wrath that we deserve for our sins so that we could be forgiven, Mm -hmm. so that we could have eternal life, uh, so that we could be made new. Uh, So that is, you know, the, the, uh, the law and the gospel 
approach, the problem-solution path. And I also want to add that a dear brother, Ray Comfort, who's uh, a Jewish believer in Jesus from South Africa, he lives in Southern California, he has really uh, sort of mastered this evangelistic approach. So you'll, you can find his videos online. I believe it's called The Way of the Master. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really, really good stuff. Now, you mentioned another one, um, a philosophical discussion on what goodness is. So the second uh, strategy or path when we're dealing with this issue of, you know, I'm a good person or this objection or hurdle or roadblock uh, that I'm a good person, that should be enough. Uh, really, the second strategy is more like a philosophical discussion uh, where you step back and you start to define terms, okay? Uh, and what you really want to get a person thinking about is what does it mean to be good? You know, as believers, again, coming from a more biblical worldview, we know that all truth is God's truth. So again, this idea of moral relativism that is so prevalent in our culture today basically offers multiple definitions for what it means to be good, right? You could be sitting there and you'll have your own set of standards and definitions for what good is. And then I'll be sitting here and I'll have my own set of definitions of what good is. Okay, so, well, who's right? This is the path where you want to take a person when thinking about how to define goodness. Because the biblical worldview says that there is one absolute moral standard. There is a biblical definition according to God of what it means to be good, mm -hmm. right? All truth that's out there is God's truth. Uh, so with this approach, I guess one of the advantages with it is that you can make this argument uh, without necessarily appealing to the scriptures. You know, you're just talking about, uh, uh, is there one standard of goodness or not? So if someone claims to be a good person, ask them, how can we define goodness? And some might suggest that uh, goodness is just the trajectory of society towards equality, right? How all of society is trying to collectively work together to uh, be, make sure that all of us are equal, mm -hmm. okay? Well, you can use questions to sort of counter that or, or analyze that statement. Well, again, what is goodness, right? What is society? Who makes up society? Is it everybody on the planet? Is a society just a certain select few elite people? Mm -hmm. Is a society one country? Is it one state? Is it one city? You know, there's multiple different kinds of societies. Well, which one gets to define what equality means, right? And on top of that, what makes equality good in and of itself? Now, another person, you know, might continue asking or stating, uh, goodness is the pursuit of social justice. Again, why is social justice good? What makes it good? What is justice? What is the standard of justice. Why are these things good? Others will generally try to appeal to this idea that goodness is determined democratically by the majority of society. And usually that's where people will appeal. You know, that, mm -hmm. you know, what's good for everybody and everybody agrees that this is good. So therefore it's good. But if you look 
throughout the course of human history. And I'm sure we could even look in at uh, current standards and situations today. But if you look throughout the history of humanity, the majority has not always been right. Uh, I mean, uh, if you follow that definition of what it means to be good, that just because everybody says it's good, therefore it's good, then at one point in history, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been in the wrong, you know, for seeking out quality and, and civil rights for African Americans, right? Because at one point in American history, the majority did not agree with that, right? Okay. Um, you look at uh, Germany during World War II, right? Uh, just because that society were convinced by the Nazis that anti-Semitism and killing Jewish people was good, that therefore it was good. Uh, that's ridiculous. Right. Are we going to say, if we, if we follow that standard, we have to say, well, yeah, because the majority of society felt that way and determined that, mm -hmm. and therefore that was good. No, that's, that's, that's ludicrous, right? So the problem with this is that it allows for, for too much input from man, honestly, in defining and determining what is good. Right. And this really, again, brings it back to the problem with us, okay? The problem that lies within the hearts of mankind. Again, we all fall short. We all mess things up. I mean, the, the scriptures are very clear on this. Uh, we are not the source of goodness. Man is not the source of goodness. Goodness, uh, really, when it comes down to it, it cannot exist without a good God who defines and exemplifies goodness. Goodness transcends man. So when we think about this idea of you know, moral relativism, that what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, and I define what's good for me, you define what's good for you, or the society defines what's good for all of us, uh, it really it just falls short because there's too much competition, there's too much contradiction. We need a standard of goodness that comes from God. Amen. That's why God's word is so important, because it is truth. And if we can rely on that, it, it helps us navigate these things. Thank you, Robert, for walking us through that first question. The second question you mentioned earlier, uh, or statement rather, is that God is not a man and Jews don't worship a man. So let's talk about that. What what does scripture say about seeing God? Yeah, this is probably the biggest um, roadblock for many Jewish people when considering uh, Jesus as the Messiah. This idea that, uh, that he is God in the flesh. Um, and when we look at what the scriptures teach and what the scriptures say, and, and when I say the scriptures, I'm talking Old Testament or the Tanakh and the New Testament as well. Right. There are a number of examples where it, it's almost funny because you see a number of different commands that, uh, that are, or statements in the Bible that are very clear that no one can see God. You can't look at the form of God and live, mm, right. right? God himself says this in the Torah, but then at the same time, there are a number of other examples in the Tanakh and the New Testament where people encounter God face-to-face, -face, where people 
speak to God or they're in God's presence. And it's described in like a a physical kind of way. So uh, this isn't necessarily like a contradiction in the Bible, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's more just a, it really speaks to, I guess, the, the complex nature of God, you know? And uh, when you take all of Scripture, everything in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, uh, and you put it all together, he can be described as being a complex unity, okay? He is one, right? It's, it's clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. There is no other God besides him. He is the one God. And then at the same time, that oneness of God as it's revealed Okay, in the Tanakh uh, and in the New Testament, we see that it's a complex unity, that he is spirit, that he is the father, that he is the son, uh, all at the same time. So when we look at some examples in the Tanakh where people encounter God, uh, where they see him, where they're in his presence, we can look in Genesis chapter 18 uh, in the account of Abraham and Sarah in their tent under the oaks of Mamre, and then three visitors approach the tent at the beginning of chapter 18. And just a few verses in, we see, we learn that one of these visitors is referred to as the Lord, okay? And even even the account in Genesis 18, it begins with, uh, with the statement that the Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre. So one of these three visitors is identified as, uh, as the Lord. Okay, and when I say the Lord, I'm talking about the sacred name of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Orthodox religious Jewish community will, will refer to him as Hashem. Mm-hmm. Okay? In the Hebrew, it's yod heh vav are the four letters that are written there for God's name. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, you know, most English translations today of the Bible, if you come across the word Lord and it's all caps, then that will be the, the name of God. So that name of God is used to designate one of these three physical visitors that are appearing and coming to visit Abraham and Sarah. And when he's there, this unique visitor who's identified as Hashem, as the Lord, he actually knows what Sarah's thinking, Mm. even when she's inside the tent. He knows that she's laughing to herself. He knows what she's thinking to herself. And then he even corrects her for what she had said. And then he makes promises to Abraham and Sarah. Okay, so that's one example. Then you look in Genesis 32 later on, again, dealing with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob in Genesis 32, he wrestles this very mysterious man. Okay, Mm -hmm. and as he's wrestling with this man, uh, this man then changes Jacob's name to Israel. And as a result of the encounter, uh, Jacob uh, reflects on what he had just experienced. And he even says, uh, I have seen God face to face. Mm. So he then names the place where they wrestled Peniel, which is Hebrew. It means the face of God. Okay. You know, and then you look later on in the scriptures, uh, in Genesis 35 verses nine and 10, reflecting back on that encounter that Jacob had with this mysterious man. Uh, where his name was changed. Genesis 35 tells us that it was God who changed his name. In 2 Kings 17.34, 
reflecting back on Jacob's name being changed to Israel, it's said that Hashem, the Lord, changed his name. And then in Hosea 12, verses 3 through 5, we see that it was an angel or messenger that changed Jacob's name. So you take all of those ideas together, uh, everything that the scripture is, you know, relaying about this. And who was it that Jacob wrestled? He was, it was God, it was the Lord, it was a special messenger who appeared as a man. Who, who can change names at that time? Like, why is that so significant? Like, who has uh, the authority to change someone's name? Well, I think that the key thing in your question there, the key part of your question is authority, right? Not just anybody could walk up to another person and, and then change their name, <laughs> right. right? I mean, first of all, the, the one who uh, gives names, the one who gave you your name when you were born, it was uh, your parents, right? right? Those who had uh, a special part in your creation, mm -hmm. okay? So in a way, they're like, they partnered with God to create you, right? Right. So uh, it, it appeals again to this authority kind of figure. Yeah, in, in a number of places, in uh, Genesis especially, with Abraham, with Sarah, with Jacob, we see that their names are changed by God himself. Right. Okay. The creator. So you can't deny that uh, this encounter was in fact God. Right, right. I mean, the, the scriptures testify that this was God in the flesh wrestling with Jacob. Right. And there are other examples as well. I think one, mm. of, one of my favorites is uh, in Daniel chapter 7. The prophet, he is receiving this vision of the throne room of God, okay? And seated on one of the thrones, because the text says that there are multiple thrones that are set up, not just one. But seated on one of the thrones is the Ancient of Days. Okay, we can understand this is it's like God the Father. And then he's there, Daniel before the throne, and all of a sudden, as he's watching all of these unique angelic creatures all over the place, he sees coming, riding on the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days on the throne, is someone who is described as a son of man. Hmm. And what does that mean, son of man? It means he looked like a human being. He looked like a person right. riding on the clouds of heaven, comes before the Ancient of Days, and then the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man, he gives him uh, authority. He gives him mm -hmm. a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and a, and a place on the eternal throne. Uh, he gives him dominion. Um, and And then, after he gives him these things, and he gives him glory as well, Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue in this vision begin to serve or worship the Son of Man. Hmm. Now, if we take this, right, if we take this vision that Daniel had, uh, what was he seeing? He was seeing the unique, complex unity of God. He was seeing the interplay between the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And when we look in other passages in the Bible, and we look at what was given to the Son of Man, right? glory was given to him. Well, uh, in Isaiah, it's it's basically said, stated that uh, God alone has the glory. He gives his glory to no other, okay? No one else gets the glory of God, but here the Son of Man is getting the glory. Uh, he's worshiped, right? Uh, in Isaiah, again, 
Uh, he alone has the glory. He gives it to no other. And he gives his praise to no one else. No one else receives praise that is designated for God except for God. But mm -hmm. yet here we see the Son of Man being praised and worshipped and mm -hmm. having glory and being the eternal king on the eternal throne. So we ask the question, right? Who then is the Son of Man? Well, he is God. He is divine. He is deity. Uh, mm -hmm. And ultimately in the New Testament, uh, we see that uh, one of the favorite titles for Jesus, for Yeshua, is the Son of Man. Okay? He is that Son of Man. So that leads me to my next question. Does Yeshua or Jesus fit the criteria of what you just described? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and he fits the criteria. And uh, in Mark chapter 14, we see a really strong example of how much he fit the criteria and how it really blew people's minds. Because in Mark 14, um, he, Jesus has been arrested Okay, he's brought into the home of the high priest and he's put on trial. And all of these accusers are coming and bringing false testimony against Jesus, uh, but they're being found to be uh, inconsistent with each other. Right. Uh, they couldn't find anything wrong with him. Um, <clears throat> and then the high priest stands up and he comes face to face with Jesus and he says, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Okay, so that was the high priest question. Are you the Messiah, Jesus? Are you the son of the God most high? Mm -hmm. Okay, so right away we see that there was, uh, in that time period, in the Jewish world, there was an expectation and understanding that the Messiah would be the son of God. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, and then the response of Jesus is what blew people's minds because he said, I am, right? He affirmed it, but then he kept going. He said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when he made that statement, he was declaring himself to be not just the Messiah, but the Son of Man, the divine Messiah, uh, as Daniel described in chapter 7. So wow. did he fulfill this? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Robert. Um, really appreciate your time walking us through these uh, two really challenging questions. And I hope that the listeners will be able to take what you've said and some of the strategies and responses to this, and they can use it when they're sharing their own faith with their uh, their neighbors, with their family, with their friends. Um, any closing thoughts you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, I would just love to add, um, you know, all of this is is good information, right? But when you are sharing the gospel with anyone, with a Jewish person, with a, a Gentile person, again, you always want to do it with the motivation of love and mm -hmm. compassion and, uh, and a, a firm grasp on what is at stake, you know? And uh, all of these things um, that we've talked about today, this is not just information so that you can win an argument. This is information that God willing, uh, we want to present to people. Uh, and pray, pray throughout the entire process that God, by his Holy Spirit, 
would use these things to stir within the hearts of many people, Jewish people, of Gentile people, uh, and ultimately testify uh, to the goodness and the salvation that we can have through Jesus the Messiah. For those who are sharing the gospel with a friend, we encourage you to remember your own personal experience, how you came to terms with your own sinfulness, and when you first realized that God came to earth through Jesus, our Messiah. These are difficult truths to accept, so be patient, knowing that it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people and open their spiritual eyes. Next week, we will feature another staff member, Olivier Melnick, who will be talking about why evangelism is not anti-Semitic and why Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah. You don't want to miss it, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Our Hope. Today's episode was made possible thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Robert Walter, Nicole Vaca, Grace Sui, Elizabeth Carp, and Kyron Bautista. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out ourhopepodcast.com or chosenpeople.com. See you next time.